You're about to listen to another episode of the Braun Body Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Braun. I founded Braun Body Training Holistics in 2019, and we started the Braun Body Podcast in March of 2020. Since then, we've released over 100 podcast episodes about various topics relating to training, nutrition, lifestyle, mental health, and so much more. We've been fortunate enough to have amazing guests on the show who range from doctors in physical therapy, chiropractics, nutrition experts, strength and conditioning specialists, and so much more. This podcast is your new one-stop shop for motivational content, health and fitness content, training advice, insight, and wisdom that you can get nowhere else. Welcome to the Brawn Body Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy the show. this episode of the Brawn Body Podcast, I'm joined by my friend Isaac Ray to be discussing his basketball journey, his training journey. So he actually started out doing traditional exercises, traditional strength and conditioning, as you'll soon hear, and he wasn't really seeing the results that he wanted from that. So he's going to kind of discuss what was going well and what was actually kind of hindering his performance gains and what he did to address that and what you can do if you're not seeing the results that you want to see in your training. We also discuss nutrition, intermittent fasting, and so much more. If you want to find out more about Isaac, you can find him on Instagram at 1SAACRay. So it's Isaac Ray, just one instead of the uh, I. This episode and all of our episodes are sponsored by CTM Band. As you know, CTM Band is my favorite recovery company. They make a uh, compressive, tensive movement band, that's the CTM, that digs into your muscles and provides a deep myofascial release that can be paired with movement. They also have a rumble roller product, a ridge roller that I'm a huge fan of, and I like to use that a lot. Huge fan of that. Highly recommend their stuff. I used it on myself, on training clients, in physical therapy clinicals, so many different places. If you want to get your hands on some of their equipment, head over to ctm.band and use the coupon code BRAWN10, that's B-R-A-W-N-1-0, and you'll get 10% off your order from CTM Band. Before we get to the show, I'm going to turn it over to one other sponsor for a quick word. Isaac, welcome to the show. Excited to have you, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. So just kind of talking about your backstory a little bit here, help people kind of get a feel for who you are. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I know you've got your bachelor's in exercise science and you do a lot of personal training, strength and conditioning type stuff. You've got a huge background in uh, basketball and you kind of partnered with this real movement athletic truth group, kind of learned uh, some things from them and kind of specialize mostly in uh, basketball and jumping and kind of that l- typical what we call lower extremity type functional stuff. Is that all correct for the most part? Correct. So uh, I started, I've been playing sports since I was nine. Uh, I started strength and conditioning at 13 in middle school. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's kind of where my journey of exercise science strength and conditioning started because I was like I was a decent athlete but I knew like I had to be in the gym to build myself greater to actually be like a okay like to above average athlete um so like I've I've lived in the gym every year since I was 13 I'm 24 now never left um so I was always like searching on the internet trying to find a new system like I tried everything you know what I mean um get to college. I played college basketball. Um, I did like, like our stereotypical every year was bench deadlift, squat, box squat, trap bar deadlift. And that's what we would do through college. And honestly, like I came in one of the strongest guys on the basketball team as a freshman. I think I was like third or fourth, just like looking around and comparing and like just seeing what people were lifting. Um, and I just, I did what I was told. Like I did what I just got stronger. Um, 
And it got to the point where, like, I was pretty much the strongest player on the team. Like, I would increase on all the weights and everything. And uh, it's just, like, I never saw an increase in my athleticism. Like, I was – I got stronger. I got, I got like, maybe more resilient. But my body never, like, felt good. Like, I never felt like I was getting better at basketball. And uh, so that led me to, t- to my senior year. And uh, I'm just always trying to find, like, new things, like – like I just try things for, and there's a lot of people who try things and don't like actually stick to it and see if it works. I'm the type of guy who will try things and work it for nine months to a year. So uh, my in college studying kinesiology in my principles of strength development class, my teacher, my professor was a, uh, she actually owned a starting strength gym. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Mark Ripita. Yep. So like, that's who, that's who taught me starting strength. And I love starting strength. Cause it's just the basics, low bar squat, deadlift, bench, military press and chin-ups. So they believe like you're a novice until you progress that. So I progressed that for like nine, nine straight months. Like that's all I did like every week. Right. Um, and I got super strong. Um, I got to like 300 for five reps on low bar squat. And That's like, awesome. I, couldn't, I couldn't really get higher than that. Right. I just kind of, I was kind of getting close to my, my like, where I couldn't get any, any better at that. Um, I think I got the 355 for three on uh trap bar or regular deadlift. Um, so like I, I put, I completely like maxed myself out in that system. Um, obviously you can go further and get into the, the more advanced progressions as far as, uh, rep schemes and sets and stuff like that. Um, but that was going into my senior year of college and, you know, like she made all these promises like, oh, athletes are so quad dominant. Like they need, they need to build up their posterior chain, get the low bar back squat, get the deadlift up. You become a better athlete. I didn't really feel that. Like I, I felt like a stronger athlete, but I wasn't, it didn't, it didn't translate to the, like the court. Um, So in my senior year, I remember like I had a, it was a bad year. We we were down. We only had a couple seniors. We had a lot of people quit the team. So um, I ended up like, I was just like at the point where I was like, I want to try a new system. So I actually found this guy knees over toes guy on Instagram when he had like 5,000 followers and like he like ran an ad or something and he's like he's honestly like a like a really good marketer so like he's just good at like um like he 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 shared his story so his story is he came from a 19 inch vertical to now plus 40 inches um and when he had a 19 inch vertical he had knee pain he had he had like six different issues between both legs um, one knee like had diagnosed MCL, ACL tear. The other knee had a quad tendon repair, uh, partial kneecap replacement, a bunch of gnarly stuff. Um, so like I, I was like, all right, I'm gonna check this stuff out, like uh, see what's this all about. And uh, while I was in season, my senior year for basketball, um, I signed up for that, and uh, he used to write articles every day for our members. And uh, I would just read, I'd eat those up. I'd read them all the day. Like I love reading stuff on exercise science. Like, so I would read it and I, it just clicked to me. Some of this stuff, I'm like, this is stuff is different. This goes against everything I've ever been taught, which is correct in strength and conditioning and exercise science. And I was like, what are you saying is it makes a lot of sense though. So what I started doing, I started doing his system while in season and, uh, I kind of never left, left, like, I never looked back after that. Um, right. uh, not to say, like, this is the only system you could train but uh, and get results, but I, for me, it's gotten a lot of results. And uh, so I go through my senior year. Actually, in my, in my senior year, I couldn't touch the rim off a two-foot approach. So, like, a left-right and a right-left plant. I couldn't touch the rim at all. And as a basketball player, that's pretty, pretty sad. Like I'm not, I'm not tall, but I'm not short either. I'm five, five eleven. 
should be able to touch the rim. Um, but uh, so like that was pretty embarrassing. Like I remember my coach, my junior year, uh, he he was just he would just like fry me for not being able to jump. Like he would just make jokes about it. So uh, everything I got in basketball in my career is because like I wanted it for heart and nothing else like it wasn't I wasn't athletically or genetically gifted above other people so um that's what led me to in my senior year um find a system that has helped me increase my vertical like eight inches since my senior year of college basketball I'm now three years removed from that and uh so that's kind of just where I'm at today that's my background Right. So it sounds like you were someone who, uh, you know, you were interested in sports and strength and conditioning and exercise from a young age. And you pursued that passion as a potential career through studying exercise science. You had a lot of professors and mentors that were giving you advice and research and insight. And you started to follow that. And you said, you know what? I saw results from it, but they weren't the results that I wanted. It wasn't what I felt I needed at the time. And you went out and kind of found something that worked for you. And you took that thing that worked for you and kind of, uh, in a way, embodied it because you now coach through that system, you know, use that system. And that's kind of who you kind of identify as for lack of a better way to put it as a trainer because that's something that really worked for you and helped you get you to where you are today which is where you want to be correct and uh yeah and it's it's funny because a lot of people a lot of people just like they'll learn what they learned for x amount of years of their life and then like oh this is what it is like i figured it out I kind of like take the approach of I'm always learning. So like, I want to, I want to figure something out more in depth, even more than I learned before. And like, I take that mindset of like, I've never arrived. I'm trying to, I'm trying, I can always get better. I'm always failing in one area. I can always get better in this area. I can always learn more. I try to take that mindset into, to everything. Right. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I, I can't echo that anymore is, you know, people graduate college, they get their degree or certification or whatever, and they get very set in their ways. And sometimes they're using good ways. Maybe their ways are I constantly learn. That's great. Maybe their ways are, you know, this is how I'm going to do things, period. And they never update things. They're never kind of involved in the ever growing, ever changing process of things. Right. You know, um, people like to criticize health and fitness because things are always changing. You know, one day this is good. The next day it's bad. And like anything, we don't have all the answers yet. So it's constantly, you know, striving for that next level and next level of insight and information that we're all kind of looking for. Uh, So with that, for you as someone who's been kind of constantly learning and adapting things, what have your own kind of training routines looked like uh, now that you're kind of in a system that you feel works very well for you, gets you where you want to be and accomplishes the goals that you have for yourself? Yeah, so a big thing is I, I I changed the focus of my training to building strength from the ground up. Yep. So I neglected a lot of calf work, a lot of tib ant work, a lot of foot, a lot of plantar fascia, a lot of quad. Like I, I, I was just a weak, weak quad athlete. Um, and another thing is training strength through an entire range of motion and not just an entire range of motion, actually breaking down a movement into like four different movements and hitting every range of the strength curve. And what I mean by that is like, take for instance, a squat um, or knee extension. So I personally, like I squat, I squat, but you could break that down into 
four different movements. You could hit a step up for the top range. Right. You can hit uh, to hit more quad dominant work rather than because in a traditional squat, you're going to get posterior chain too. So I'll elevate my, my heels super like a lot to hit quad. And then I'll break down the bottom range into an ATG split squat. So I'm actually hitting that, that super bottom range. So I'm hitting all three of those bottom range, mid range and top range in the uh, step ups. There's also another range, um, like you would call it like outer range or like extreme range. Some people would call it. Um, so that would be like a sissy squat. And yep. that's kind of like, it's kind of like not on the, the strength curve, but it's like, it's an extreme of knee extension. Um, and it's a very, like when you get into those extreme ranges, it's more of a, a tendon dominant movement. So that's another thing. Like I've focused a lot of my training towards training and increasing tendon strength, which is a kind of a misunderstood topic. I didn't even know you could train tendons. Until right. Ago. Right. Yeah. So with um, what you were saying there before, training the end ranges is definitely something that is very overlooked a lot of people don't think about that they think okay well this is my current range and it's better to move through my available range than to get full mobility take the time to do that because it's going to take forever to do that right and then train those end ranges and i think a lot of what you said like we've talked about before is very overlooked it's like well it takes too long well you know it's not going to be effective to get there and it's like these things don't occur overnight, one. And two, if you can't move your body through a full range and control it, then what do you expect will happen when you step on an athletic field or the basketball court or the track and go for a run or whatever? Uh, so I like that you're very focused on overall function and have overall movement in mind. Um, I'm also a huge fan of some of the exercises you selected, because like you said, you know, these are things that work, you know, specific ranges, but they do a lot more than that. Something like a lunge or a step up is going to do more than just work your quads. You're going to have to keep your core tight because it's a compound movement. You're going to have to activate your glutes and proximal hip muscles and core muscles to control the tracking of your knee through that movement. So it's a lot more functional in nature than something like a seated leg extension to train the quads, which is what I see a lot of people kind of favoring. Uh, and I'm, I mean, it's an exercise and it's something that has a place, but I personally tend to steer away from stuff like that myself, like a seated leg extension. Um, so I love your focus on function and overall, I like how you're bringing up tendons as well. Now, last I checked, the kind of protocol for tendon strengthening was eccentric loading. Is that still kind of what you follow for the most part? Yeah, I mean, in training and when I train people, I pretty much focus on, like, I don't necessarily give people a specific tempo, but for the most part, I want to see, I want to see you actually control the weight on the way right. down the eccentric. So like take a squat. I want to see like a three to five second control on the way down. And then we're not going to like bounce out of the bottom. We're going to pause at the bottom. Now at the top, now, if you want to get fast, explode out. Yep. So it's three to five seconds down, pause for a second, explode. Up. Yep. So that's kind of like, that's kind of the mindset I take with, 99 to 100 percent of my lifts like maybe maybe rdl i do rdl i do way different that i'm i'm pretty much not focusing on eccentric just trying to explode out of that bottom um so it's not it's not like an overarching theme for everything but when it comes to quads especially like i want you to be able to control the weight for sure um and there's a lot of research that actually backs up the importance of eccentric loading. Um, so I know in your specific certification and background, a lot of focus is on the knee because knee injuries, especially in athletes are very debilitating. 
Um, I forget the exact percentage right off the top of my head, but I know it's over 50% of athletes who experience an ACL tear do not return to the same level of function, period. So, you know, if you're someone who, you know, maybe you're on the football field, you run like a 4-4-40 and, you know, you're leading the team in stats or something like that. If you experience an ACL tear, the odds are not in your favor to return to that same caliper of play. Luckily, something like eccentric loading, as you were just talking about, can actually help prevent ACL tears. There was a study done by Timmins in 2018. I forget what journal it was published in right off, but they found for every 10 Newton increase in eccentric strength to the hamstrings, the incidence of ACL risk or the chance you would injure your ACL decreased by about 9.7%. So naturally it would make sense to spend a lot of time doing those kinds of exercises and obviously the gold standard for eccentric hamstring strength is one of your favorites, the Nordic. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you go to a gym and you don't see people doing Nordics anywhere for some reason. Yeah, it's uh, I when I was first doing Nordics, I kind of had like makeshift. Uh, there's actually tons of different ways you can makeshift a Nordic, um, even at a like a regular gym that doesn't have anything. Um but yeah, you're right. Like you walk into a regular gym, you're not going to, you're not going to find readily available something to be able to do in Nordic. Um, I think you'll find in a, a lot of gyms, a GHD. Yep. Um, and those, those actually, they're good too. Like they're not, you're going to get some uh, hamstring benefit from that and you can work glute too. Um, but the thing with, I don't know if you've seen the Nordic bench that I use, it's, it's called a, it's basically like they part, they call it like a poor man's glute ham raise. Um, <laughs> it's just like, like a floor, like a floor glute ham. Like it's not this big whole contraption. It's super simple. They're actually pretty cheap compared to other fitness equipment. I think Titan fitness sells one for like two fifty, and then uh rogue sells one. It's really nice that I have, I have one. It's like, it used to be 500. I think they bumped it up to 600 because probably because people are buying it. Um, <laughs> but the reason that that, that uh, Nordic machine is better for hamstrings, I believe, is because on the glute, the GHD, like you have that pad, that big giant pad in front of you. And you kind of like, you can't get that strength behind your knee that the Nordic actually benefits. Um, I'd, you'd have to see a visual to understand. For right. It kind of changes the moment arms of the muscles and biases the hamstrings a little more instead right. of the glutes. And the movement itself is more at the knee than the hip. Yeah. So it hits right behind the knee, which right. a lot of people like what strength, like nobody's strengthening behind the knee. We're all, we're all worried about the front, but we're missing this huge part. And a lot of a lot of physical therapists and and doctors have vouched for the Nordic because it literally it trains you in that position right where your ACL attaches, and uh, you you slowly progress that you get better and better. We see decreases in in hamstring. Right, and with a big focus on the knee, um, I like to bring in what a uh, good a mentor of mine called he calls it regional interdependence that's basically when stuff in one spot is controlled by stuff at other spots so stuff at the knee is influenced by what we do at the foot and ankle and what we do at the hip so kind of working from the ground up because i know you said that's kind of how you think and how you work uh what kind of things are you looking at for the foot and ankle um, are you doing any specific short foot exercises, barefoot training? Are you working through like that tib anterior strengthening protocol? What does that look like for yourself? Right. So I personally do, I wear barefoot shoes. I train barefoot too, without shoes. Um, I, I don't think you have to, but that's just, that's just throwing that out there. Um, as far as building from the ground up, it's actually super simple. Um, basically, 
I use a bent knee calf raise, a straight leg calf raise, and then a reverse calf raise. So a tib raise, a tib ant yep. raise. Um, so I work those three and then I use other, other stuff like, uh, it's called a Peterson step up. It's a reverse step up created by Carl Peterson. He was a, uh, athletic trainer therapist in Canada. Um, he, he coined the term for the movement, but basically it's just a step up where you go up onto your toes and you have weight and then you step back. It, it's something I kind of have to like would show visually, but uh, it, it looks that. Uh, comparable to like a touchdown squat almost in a way. Kind of. Yeah. So it, it kind of marries the strength between the knee and the foot. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of it. That's basically what I train. Like, but I'm, I'm telling I'm talking like I'm increasing weight. Like I'm trying to take those to failure, like two to three times a week. Um, right. and that's not something I did growing up. It was all like, let's just get your hips strong. Let's get your quad strong. Um, like, yeah, let's do that, but let's also not neglect everything below that. Like that's stuff that is very important to strengthen in, in terms of increasing injury prevention, resilience. Um, and yeah. Now with that too, again, as we've talked, you definitely have a big focus on function and you've mentioned some great exercises that work these things in isolation, but I know you also do a lot of kind of sled training. And I know that's something that you do barefoot as well. Does that kind of fall under that same category of, Hey, I'm going to work from the ground up with this and just focus on overall, like from my feet, from my ankles, this kind of movement, this kind of strengthening and loading it in a functional movement. So, you know, you can't really be functional or you can't really be more functional than running or pulling or walking, uh, especially under a load like that. Um, oh, yeah. And you're into the hills too, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because, yeah, a sled when used correctly can be an insane tool to build foot strength. Um, honestly, as an athlete, if I could just have a heavy sled and nothing else, I would be fine. Um, obviously you'd miss some things, but you can, you can get a lot out of just pushing a heavy sled and, and pulling a heavy sled backwards. Um, there's, it gets like when you do a reverse sled, it definitely gets into your foot. Um, and it kind of, it kind of, it hits a lot of quad too. Cause you're, you're literally pulling yourself backwards. Like you can't, it kind of switches off your posterior chain. Like you just gotta, you gotta pull that thing. Um, and then forward sled, um, the cool aspect of the sled is that you can lit, you can load it up with heavy weight. You're not going to hurt anybody. Like as a trainer, like you can get someone a great workout. What if they can't push a sled? Cause it's too heavy. It just doesn't move. Right. Like it's, it's a cool tool for that because you literally, you're not going to get anybody hurt. And you can, with that too, it's very concentric focused. So you talked before about the importance of being explosive so with that, you get that explosive element with something like a sled or a hill, but to take that a step further, when do we see muscle soreness? When do we see athletes really complaining like, hey, this is sore, achy, it hurts when we do that eccentric loading. So if you're not doing any eccentric loading, this is something you could potentially incorporate as a strength coach almost daily. You can load up sled pushes, not necessarily, you know, extremely heavy, heavy every day, but you can do that movement every single day. And if you program it right, athletes will be able to do it and not get sore from it and continue to see benefit from doing that. And it's something so simple, right? Right. It's, it's just basic, push the sled, do it. It's not a whole lot of skill or technicality or what we call neuromuscular, neuromotor planning involved. It's just push it. Right, um, 100% right. And with that, 
Um, two, I think it's important to just kind of mention all these different things we're mentioning about uh, these are things that regardless of what your sport is, you will benefit from it. I don't care if you're a runner, a basketball player, a field hockey player, a soccer player, a football player. These are all things that you will benefit from because it is functional uh, improvement to your entire lower extremity, starting from the feet, which is where all lower extremity movement begins, and working up the chain. And again, regardless of your sport, regardless of your health and fitness goal, these are things that will benefit you. So if you're someone who's kind of trying to navigate things and you're like, you know, I'm not really sure where to start. I'm not sure what to do. Or, you know, maybe you're a strength coach and you're looking to overhaul things and you're like, you know, are these things I should incorporate for my team? Uh, I would say regardless of what your team is, regardless of what sport, anything like that, these are all things that should definitely be included. Uh, and I'm sure you would probably echo that as well. Yeah. And there's a, there's a ton of different ways you can alter, like you can alter like foot position as far as like, I could try to put my knee over my toe as far as I can and get more into pushing through that, that ball in my foot through my toe um, when you're pushing the sled. Um, and then like, you can even use it for hamstring rehab too. If uh, you're going to pull the sled forward, um, you can drag it behind you and kind of like, just bend over and then keep your legs mostly straight and walk like that. It can be a tool to, to rehab hamstring injuries. So like, there's a lot of cool things you can do with a sled. For sure. And like we talked about to incorporating something like a hill or an incline. Um, I was looking for the exact study on it and unfortunately I couldn't quite find it, but um, essentially when it comes to something like a hill, you're increasing your hip flexion angle. Uh, we see the same thing with a step up, right? So increasing your angle of hip flexion will increase the amount of extension. So glute, hamstring and adductor activation that you see. Um, so a lot of people forget that muscles like the adductor magnus actually help to uh, extend the hip when the hip is very flexed. Um, so kind of working up the chain here with all these things that we just talked about, not only does it play an important role at the foot and ankle and starting from the ground up, but it does so much up the chain at the hip. And this is where, you know, functionally our biggest muscles are in the lower extremity. You know, I think if I had a nickel for every time I heard someone say, you know, your glutes are your biggest muscle, they're your horsepower, they're your bread and butter for athletes. You know, I think I would be pretty, uh, pretty rich if I, I had a nickel for every time I heard that. Um, so when it comes to kind of that more specific hip focused kind of interventions, what are you kind of looking at for your go-to exercises? Um, again, I kind of break down a, a deadlift into a couple exercises. Yep. So I think the really underrated exercises are back extensions. Um, whether that be 90 degree or that be on a 45 degree hyper. Um, I think back extensions are money, but I think doing it on one leg is even better. So doing a single leg back extension, mm -hmm. um, it takes, you don't, you no longer have two hamstrings. You still have two glutes. It's kind of, you may be focused on the one side glute more than the other. Um, maybe a little bit more, uh, low back on the other side. Um, but for the most part, um, like you're going to have a lot more force through that hamstring. So you actually get hamstring gains from a 45 degree back extension when you go on single leg. Um, so that's one thing I do. Um, that works like the top range of motion in, in hip extension. Um, then I take, I take like an RDL. Um, I think I think since I'm training so much knee over toe work, isolating the quad, um, I want to do the exact opposite. So I, I feel like if I do a regular deadlift, I'm getting too much quad in it. I'd rather focus, I'd rather put more force into my hamstring, my glute. So I'll do, actually I do full range RDL. So like I 
I elevate myself on a six inch box and I take full range of motion. Uh, I have my knee slightly bent and RDL it. That'll that work like mid range hamstring. You'll get some hamstring isometrically um, and then it will work mid range hip, ex, hip extension. Um, and then I actually do another exercise that's kind of hasn't been, you don't see it a lot. It's called a seated good morning. Um, and this kind of takes you into the point where your hip will be closest to your quad. Um, so it kind of, it works that bottom range hip extension. So I isolate that. It's basically just, I'm breaking down a deadlift into three movements. Um, so that's kind of, now that's not everything for the hip. Um, like that's, that's training hip extension in three different ways, but I believe there's a lot of other stuff we need to do, like opening up the piriformis. Um, you have a kind of unique piriformis deadlift variation, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, I'm, I, it's, it's, it's weird because I, I don't know if you can really add weight to the piriformis. I think you can, um, but I think you just, I think you do fine with just stretching it and getting, getting more range of motion, being able to hold it longer. Um, it's kind of a weird, I've played around with trying to load it in different ways and you definitely can but it's just it's just a weird movement um but i really do think uh it's a super key stretch is being able to open up that piriformis i think it like you said earlier um it's people would get rid of their knee issues if they'd fix their hips and their ankles now right. there's stuff we need for the knee i believe that can help increase resilience but at the end of the day like you have to you got to do it all you can't just isolate the knee and try to fix the knee it's it's the hip knee and foot and ankle it's everything for sure uh and i like a lot of things that you brought up and i'm gonna kind of just run through them one at a time if i can keep the order straight in my head um so with the back extension one of the things that I love about that exercise personally for the glutes is it should be mostly isometric in nature for the glutes because of our laws of muscle inhibition. So uh, a lot of people don't activate their glutes, their core, their hamstrings when they're doing a back extension and they use almost exclusively the muscle group that we call the spinal erectors. Right. So they dominate the movement with their back and they don't know how to use their hips. So if done right, this movement will teach you how to uh, use your hips through that kind of glute uh, isometric contraction and a little bit of a concentric eccentric contraction for that hip extension moment. But what I really like about it is that core and hamstring involvement with the glutes because those muscles in turn, when they're activated, shut off your hip flexors. Uh, there's a lot of debate about the hip flexors. Some people will tell you that they're very tight. Some people will tell you that they're very weak. But one thing I can assure you is if you're doing any kind of back extension moment without any kind of inhibition to the hip flexors, regardless of if you have tight hip flexors or weak hip flexors, they are pulling forward on your spine while you are moving backwards. That's not a very good combination of movement. So being able to appropriately activate those muscles like you were talking about is crucial, not just for hip, knee kind of sport function like we've been talking about, but also for preventing back, back pain later in life. Uh, there's a lot of studies on imaging uh, that I like to reference. And there's some that show up to 97% of people over the age of 65 have abnormalities that'll show up on an MRI. So, you know, back pain is a very common thing that we see later in life. And if you're doing something like increasing the strength and activation of your glutes, hamstrings, and core, uh, your odds of experiencing back pain go way down because you are literally attacking the main mechanisms for back pain. Um, I also really like that you touched on kind of the piriformis role and the piriformis gets a lot of bad rep and I can understand why it does 
tend to cause problems, right? It gets tight. We get piriformis syndrome, all these terrible things. But a lot of stretches that uh, go after the piriformis, like for example, the infamous pigeon stretch, also attack the hip joint capsule itself. So just like muscles can get tight, your joint capsule, that kind of bundle of stuff around your joint can also get tight. And we call the um, thing, the limitations that we see as a result of that capsular patterns. Um, So there's some beliefs as to, you know, what joint when the capsule is tight, what movements you'll see limited. Um, So for the hip, for example, you see a big lack in internal rotation and abduction, which uh, is very common amongst people these days. We see a lot of people with tight hips and you ask someone to lift their leg out to their side and they really struggle to do that. You ask someone to internally rotate their hip and they struggle to do that. So I like how you kind of indirectly brought up that, hey, you know, we need to do these stretches for the piriformis but we also need to do them for the hip capsule itself uh, because capsular limitations can be a pain to work through uh, because unlike muscles, you can't just like, you know, shut it off with like a little soft tissue work or massage or something like that. Um, So I'll get off my little soapbox now. Um, But as part of our approach to like health and fitness and training, obviously training is a big piece, but there's more to it than just that. So one of the most important factors is nutrition. Uh, we've talked a little bit. And I'm going to guess that you have a similar nutrition approach to me, but I'm very interested to hear what is your kind of uh, eating strategy look like when it comes to food? Yeah. So like I'm, I try to keep things super simple with diet. I think it, it's you're really easy to get down a rabbit hole and then, and then keep going and uh, make things super complex. Um, I think, I think we need to eat more real food. We Mm -hmm. need, we need to eat people get into the whole meat versus, uh, vegan diet. Like I'm just like here, like eat both eat real food. (laughs) Um, just, I think the, the major issue that we have in America and Western society is, is just we don't eat real food. We eat too much industrial seed oils. We eat too much processed carbohydrate. And then to top it off, then we add a bunch of processed sugars. And I think if you stay, steer clear of those, you eat, you eat real whole foods, animal and plant, fruit, vegetables, eggs, like you're gonna be good to go. Um, so sure. I kind of follow, I just, I eat a lot of meat, uh, steak, ground beef, chicken. Um, I usually cook that in either avocado oil or ghee, clarified butter. Um, and, or I'll cook it in regular butter too. And then I kind of, I don't any, eat as many vegetables. Um, I pretty much, I eat a lot of fruit. So I'll eat dates oranges, apples, pears, anything, you name it, grapes. Um, so that's kind of where, where my diet stands. And, uh, you know, I've played around with different diets over the years. Like at one point I bought into the, the keto buzz and, oh, it's the best way for an athlete. If you become fat adapted, um, in just my experience, I felt pretty terrible trying to compete and train while on keto i just feel like i i feel like i'm 75 percent of isaac ray when i'm on keto (laughs) like (laughs) it's like yeah Uh, i i do i do like it i think if people have issues i know it really helped my dad uh he uh was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and keto really helped him get to the point where he's pretty much off medication so i think there's definitely tools but um, as far as like the, the person trying to compete or try to come to the gym every day and get better, you, you're going to need carb in there. Right. And, you know, the big thing with everything, whenever we talk about nutrition is one, exactly what you just said, you have to eat real food. Um, there's like this 
trend going on right now. I don't understand it. I just see a lot of people I know doing it where they crush like three Rice Krispies before they lift at the gym. And I just kind of look at that and shake my head because I, I personally can't eat anything before I go to the gym. Like my stomach would just hate me, let alone, you know, three or 400 calories of straight processed sugar. Like I cannot imagine. Um, but you have to eat real food. I can't echo that enough. And like you were alluding to when it came to meat, you're not just kind of, you know, buying the low quality, low cut of uh, meat and, you know, throwing it in like vegetable oil. Like you're taking the time to actually properly prepare it and do it right. You're not just buying like, you know, hot dogs and calling it like your meat for the day. Um, a lot of the studies that go against consumption of meat actually use things like hot dogs and fast food as the primary sources of meat. So no wonder why they demonize it. Um, I uh, will agree with you that keto and some of the other specific diet approaches are not for everyone, right? You have to kind of play around with things and find what works for you. Um, so for example, for myself, I use an intermittent fasting approach where I don't eat for 18 to 20 hours a day. I train first thing in the morning without putting any food in me, no coffee, nothing like that. And that works really well for me. Now, for someone else, they couldn't do that. But to be able to kind of tease out, hey, this works for me, this doesn't work for me, it's kind of this never-ending process of self-experimentation. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had a good friend of mine on the podcast, William, who was talking about um, how he was eating a lot of eggs because he was trying to bulk up. And he noticed he was having some stomach problems and he just kind of on a whim said, you know, I'm just going to try not eating eggs today. And what do you know? He didn't have stomach problems. Um, so he just kind of like reworked his diet and he said, I'm going to eat more chicken, more beef, more fish, and just not eat eggs as much. Um, so I really like that you kind of push that same thing. It's all about what works for you and what works for you might not work for someone else. Um, with that too, do you kind of use the same approach when it comes to supplements? I know a lot of people like to get caught up in what I'll call like pyramid schemes when it comes to supplements or, you know, they'll push all these different things. Like you need trend, you need SARMs, you need your pre-workout, you need all these things in order to be, you know, your maximum potential or maximum self. Um, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here and assume that you probably don't feel that way. <laughs> Nah, um, I've actually, I've never taken, like, I've never bought into that whole, like, oh, we gotta, we gotta get this pre-workout in order, and this post-workout in at the exact time in order to maximize your gains. Mm -hmm. I just, I just don't, I've never bought into that. Um, oh. and I feel like I've gained a lot of muscle without worrying about that. Mm -hmm. Um, at the end of the day, you got to get enough protein. You got to get enough fat to, to build your right. body. Um, and going back off what you said about intermittent fasting, um, I started, I started intermittent fasting. Uh, what was it like six years ago now? So I've kind of been, I've kind of been doing that like weekly, not like every day, but I've done that weekly for six, six straight years. And I'll say something about this. I used to get like bronchitis for like three weeks every year. After the year I started intermittent fasting, I no longer get that every year. I don't know if that's like a, a, uh, <laughs> a coincidence or not, but like when I started intermittent fasting, I drastically saw like a lot of health benefits from that. Now, right. I don't necessarily think you have to intermittent fast to be able to get that. I believe that I was, I was very insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. So um, I, the reason why I think that is because like when I'd be playing sports for a long period of time and maybe haven't eaten as much food that day, um, I would get like shaky and like I'd feel like I just have no more energy left. Whereas like now... Now that I have fixed that insulin resistance problem, like, yeah, I might feel a little bit more tired when I have less carb in me, 
but now I, I don't have those crashes anymore. Um, right. And I think that's really where my issue was. Like my, my chronic bronchitis was from like my insulin resistance. Uh, there's a lot of disease that's linked to that. Um, and like, it's kind of scary because like, there's something like some like 70% of America is insulin resistant, which is crazy. Yep. Um, that's basically what turns into pre-diabetes and then diabetes. Um, but yeah, I love, I've, I've loved intermittent fasting. I've since kind of switched off it a little bit. I've been playing around with eating in the morning and then, uh, eating at night. So eating pretty much before I train, like some carbs, not a lot of food. Um, but I've been playing around with different styles, but yeah, I've, I really do like intermittent fasting, but like you said, it's, it's not for everybody. Right. And like anything, you have to find what works for you within it. So, you know, I mentioned, I do like 18 to 20 hours, no food, four to six hour feeding window. That's it. Simple. That might work for me, but it might not work for you. Luckily, there's so many other ways to go around it. Um, so there's what we call a circadian rhythm fast, which is 13 hours of no food and 11 hours of food. Uh, there's also other um, fasting styles where you just don't eat for like, you know, a day. You go 24 hours, no food, and then back to normal. Um, and you can do those kind of quarterly or monthly. There's different ways to schedule uh, them into your life, so to speak. And the whole reason that we promote something like intermittent fasting for its health benefits is, as you just said, in America, 88% of people are in poor metabolic health condition and our obesity and overweight numbers continue to climb. Uh, there was a study I love to reference by uh, the doctor's name is Yufa Wang, I believe, from John Hopkins. And I think it was like a 2006 or 2008 study. Uh, and it was recently confirmed a year or two ago by a Harvard University study. And they looked at kind of the projection for Americans uh, with obesity. So where are we heading over the next you know, 30, 40 years? And the initial study from Hopkins showed that by the year 2048, over 95% of Americans will be overweight or obese. And the Harvard study that was recently done confirmed it and said, we actually might be a little bit ahead of that curve. I'd love to see what it looks like now uh, after the pandemic, because um, I've seen a lot of people and talked with a lot of people who have definitely experienced some unwanted weight gain. Um, but where fasting plays a role, uh, and this is all kind of medically backed, um, Dr. Peter Tia, he's the host of a podcast called The Drive, you might have heard of that before, is a huge pro proponent of intermittent fasting for its health effects. Uh, the main mechanisms are increasing cellular autophagy. So allowing your body a chance to kind of clean itself out and reset itself. So instead of constantly putting food in, being in a state of what we call anabolism or activating pathways such as mTOR, which are constantly building in your body, we give the body a chance to kind of get rid of things that it doesn't want or need around, which is very beneficial. Um, so there's research for intermittent fasting and its role in preventing or treating something like cancer, because essentially cancer is we've got stuff we don't want around and we need to get rid of it. Um, there's a lot of other kind of tie-ins with increasing insulin sensitivity, increasing growth hormone levels, increasing androgen receptor density. Uh, for those who don't know, androgen receptors are things for like testosterone and estrogen. So, you know, you college kids, these are like your favorite hormones. Um, this increases the amount of those receptors in your body. So your hormones are more easily bound to a receptor so they can exert their effects uh, more readily. And there's so many other benefits to just taking a period of time and not eating. And this is something that kind of comes from our ancestors, right? Ancestrally, looking through the kind of walk of humankind for the past 2000 years or so, we did not just wake up and, you know, throw a pop tart in the toaster and have breakfast. We didn't just up and walk to, you know, the grocery store and get our food for the day. We had to hunt and we had to kill our food. 
if we couldn't kill it, then we had to forage for it and find it somewhere out in nature. And if we couldn't do that, then, well, we just kind of went hungry. Um, and, you know, the fact that we had to do these physically demanding things in a state of hunger and by physically demanding, it's not just like, you know, up and walking around, like archeological evidence suggests that the longbows that people were using about a thousand plus years ago uh, had a draw weight of about 120 pounds. So imagine going to the dumbbell, uh, the dumbbell rack at the gym and picking up a 120 pound dumbbell, doing a dumbbell row with it and holding it steady for 10, 12 seconds. You know, think about that with in relation to a longbow, right? That's the closest we can come to that these days is holding something steady for 10 to 12 seconds while you're, you know, appropriately lining everything up and aiming and all that. So it's amazing where we've come from and uh, just kind of where we're at today. Um, so that's my second soapbox for the day. <laughs> no, but you're right. Uh, I saw this stat, uh, the average American, they eat in a 16 hour time window. So mm -hmm. they, they eat from eight to the time they go to bed at what, like eight to 12, yep. something like that, or six to 10, whatever you want it to be. Um, and like, and partner that with the food that we are consuming as a culture and eating all that food for all that time of the day, like it's, it's not good. And we wonder why we're having all these health issues, um, obesity, type two diabetes, cancer, all these issues that are stemming from like the, the choices we're making with food and it's crazy because people like think you're insane if like you'd go like four hours without food. They're like, oh my gosh, like, how do you do that? Um, and it's, it's like, we have to, we have to change this mindset in the culture. And I don't know how we do it. Cause like people are bombarded every day with, with food. Like that's what, that's what advertisements are. Like I, we see them, we see them every day, people. And it's just kind of like, we're kind of like set in our Americanized society ways. It's like sit on the couch, watch TV and like eat food. That's yeah. good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, the intermittent fasting approach, it, it's definitely something it, and you don't have to start out super like crazy. You don't have to do 18 and six or 20 and four. Like you can start out, just simply like if you're going 12 and 12, like you could do eight, eight of those hours you're sleeping and then four of them you're fasting. It's not super crazy, like, but people will see a lot of benefits from just doing that. For sure. Um, and with all these things we talk about, you know, always good to just kind of touch up with your primary care provider beforehand and just say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about trying this out. Is there anything I should know? Um, reason I bring that up is a lot of people anymore are on things like medications or they have different chronic diseases or ailments that, you know, you don't always know how they interact with other things. Um, and, you know, that could range from something as simple as, you know, I take ibuprofen four times a day to, you know, I take five or six different medications or I take birth control or whatever it is. Um, so always kind of get that kind of next level clearance first because you don't know what effect those medications have on your body and you don't know how that's going to interact with other things that are going to alter your internal physiology. Uh, so with that, Isaac, anything else that you want to add or anything that we missed about your kind of training approach, athletic truth, uh, truth group, and everything that you've been kind of doing and learning over the course of your own journey? Um, you know, we kind of, we kind of hit everything as far as training. Um, obviously like there's, there's all these exercises that you could choose from. Like you go on the internet, you can find all this different advice at the end of the day. Like I try to like simplify training as much as possible. Um, mm -hmm. just because I use the tools that I use for me 
doesn't mean I necessarily use it for every situation. Um, but a cool thing about ATG athletic truth group is we found a way to make every single exercise 100% scalable to everybody's ability. So like take a step up, like we have, there, we've had wins of people in walkers, like who can't walk yet. Um, they're doing the exercises like a step up and they're getting working and they're feeling better. So like, it's kind of hard because like before ATG, I didn't really understand the regression and progression way that I do now. So um, it's, it's a lot easier to show visually, but basically like you can go from using assistance like a wall or a chair to the point where, oh, I can use no assistance and I can just use my body weight. Then we, then we go to the point where, oh, I can add a little bit of weight and then we go from there. Um, it's, it looks different for each exercise, but like take for instance, an ATG split squat. Um, we didn't really go into depth with this one yet. Um, but a lot of people cannot do a full range, perfect form ATG split squat. They don't have the back leg hip flexor mobility. They don't have the, the, the ability of their hips to even get into that, that lunge ATG, ATG lunge position. Um, but I can still get anybody into that exercise. It's just, I won't be on flat ground. I'll elevate their front leg. So this takes all, a lot of the force off that back hip flexor. And it allows you to also open up those hips on the front leg. Um, and then we can get that full range knee flexion um, and we work from there. So it might start with, I might start with a 12 inch box on the front leg. I'm still working ATG split squat, but I'm just having a super regressed form. Then they get better next week. We go to 10 inches. Okay. We get better next week, eight inches, six inches, four inches. Next thing you know, you're on flat ground. As you were building, you were building that back, that back hip flexor. You were building everything. You were still doing an ATG split squat, we were just regressing it. And we kind of take that, that uh, philosophy into everything. So we find a way to, to set people up so that we switch out their mindset of people take for a Nordic, for example, people look at a Nordic and they're like, oh my gosh, I'll never be able to do that. We try to flip people's mindset into, yes, you actually can do that at your own level right now. Mm -hmm. So we, we put we make this gradient scale and it's just like some people are higher, some people are lower, but how do we increase your ability on that scale? And I think a lot of coaches don't understand that either. Cause I, I mean, I went, I went 20 plus years of my life, not understand, really understanding regression and progression. Like you always knew like, Oh, if you can't do this exercise, we have this exercise to do for you. Whereas we take the mindset now is like, you're using the same exercise. You're just keeping progressing it. Um, so it's a kind of a different way of looking at training. For sure. And I like how you said that it's very much a, what I would call a enablement approach to training. It's meeting people where they're at and showing them that, Hey, you know, you can actually do these things. You might not think you can, but you can, and we're going to show you how. Um, and this is a skill that I think, physical therapists, just speaking broadly, stereotyping about the profession a little bit in general, some physical therapists could definitely use a little bit more of a push in this area. Um, a lot of people are struggling uh, from what I've seen anyways, in my personal experiences with their ability to progress and regress exercises uh, because they just kind of put things in buckets and they don't often think about how can I change the mechanics of things? How can I alter the positioning to decrease this and increase this? Um, so having the skill to kind of alter the moment arms and the overall mechanics of a movement while still keeping the same pattern there, uh, being able to do that quickly and effectively is obviously an essential skill for anyone in training. 
so I like that you bring that up and I like how you bring in that split squat example because really that's one of the best exercises you should be doing for your lower extremity, right? You get single leg activation, you get full range of motion mobility. You also get full uh, range of motion strengthening through that eccentric, isometric, concentric curve that you talked about earlier. Uh, so, and it's loadable. You can progress with it as much as you want. Um, so, you know, that's one movement that like we talked about earlier, you know, regardless of your goal, you're probably going to get benefit from doing that movement correctly and doing it well. So awesome point. And I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you for that, man. Yeah, no problem. All right, Isaac, really appreciate your time, man. Uh, this was a great episode. Really. Thanks again. Uh, where can people find more about you? Uh, should they be looking on Instagram or where th can they kind of link up with you? Yeah. So I'm pretty much only on Instagram. Uh, it's number one. So one X A A C R A Y. So yep. it's just Isaac Ray with one as I, but, uh, someone already took that. So that's going to do it for today's episode of the Broad Body Podcast. Be sure you subscribe if you're not already. That way you don't miss out on any of our upcoming podcast episodes. Last, if you're listening on iTunes, please make sure you leave a review. We love reading reviews and getting your feedback. And if you're feeling so inclined, you can actually send in a voice message. There should be a link below in the description of the episode to send us in a voice message. We can actually play that on a future podcast episode. So with that, thanks again for tuning into this episode. We'll see you next week.